0: Well, good morning, everyone. Um, I recently heard my favorite Bible interpreter speaking to the question, how to tell the greatest story ever told, the gospel. N.T. Wright, who is now even more famous because he is on the back of Village Church's t-shirt, uh, began by telling a story. He was sitting next to a Japanese man on a train, and this man saw Tom Wright reading a book, that had in big letters on the front cover, Jesus. And this man had recently come to London and he had never heard a single thing about Jesus. And he had only at that point learned a few things about English. So this made for an interesting conversation. This man had at one point followed a crowd into a large building, a church, and over and over he heard the person up front saying the word Jesus. So he was very curious. And N.T. Wright began what he described as a fumbling version of telling the gospel story to somebody who had absolutely no previous experience about Jesus. Now, this doesn't happen very often, I think. More often than not, we don't meet somebody who has never heard a single thing about Jesus. N.T. Wright reflected by saying this, "'Most often it's not that folks don't know anything about Jesus. Rather, it's that they know the wrong things.'" This was the problem of our Pharisees in our gospel story this morning. So often, though, we find ourselves accidentally participating in similar errors, where we are codifying our own preferences as gospel truth. But the reality is that Jesus is so much more beautiful than the Jesus we so often make him out to be. So as we dive into our passage this morning, we will learn how to receive and tell others about the true and beautiful Jesus. And along the way, we might learn a few things that we have learned in the wrong way. I think it's especially helpful to remember who our author is this morning, the Gospel of Mark. Mark is an evangelist. This is his driver for why he's writing. He's fast-paced. He's the most efficient gospel writer. And so he's extremely intentional when he slows down like when he takes 23 whole verses for one story. Beth, thank you for reading a long reading this morning for the gospel passage. For Mark, this is an inordinately long passage for one moment. And it means that there's something very important here for us about who Jesus is, how we might receive him, and what we tell others about who he is. Now, just before our reading, Jesus makes three big old miracle ha- miracles happen. He feeds the 5,000, he walks on water, and he heals everybody who comes to him in Gennesaret. In other words, he provides manna from heaven, as in the Old Testament. He's taming the chaos of the waters, as in creation. And he restores broken bodies, flexing over the powers of darkness. These are things that only God does. This, along with many other of his doings and sayings, our implicit claims, to be God himself. Now, the Pharisees should have been the first people to recognize Jesus as God, but they instead presumed to ask the question that we see in our passage this morning. Basically, will you get with the program or not? Our program. Here's how it goes. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the traditions of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Unclean hands. Now, at first blush, it might seem like the Pharisees are simply looking for an open discussion. What does Jesus believe? I'd really like to know. But this is not the heart of the Pharisees, as we know. While they didn't believe in Jesus' claims to be God, we know that they were aware of them. This is why, even from back in Mark chapter 3, they held counsel against him, trying to figure out how to destroy him they knew the things that jesus was claiming and they didn't like it now for anybody being labeled an outsider this could have had serious ramifications but as a divinity claiming would be messiah if he were labeled an outsider it would have deathly serious implications when the pharisees gathered to jesus at the start of our passage it's not by mere happenstance they followed him there They're seeking him out, trying to entrap him, either to force him into their mold or to label him as an outsider. This is a dangerous motivation that the Pharisees have. And their weapon of choice is this intricately built system of traditions. This is what they use to draw a line in the sand between outsider and insider, follower of God or not. So how do we understand these traditions? What do we do with them? Because they are being wielded dangerously. But I think it's really important for us, for all kinds of reasons, to recognize that these are not inherently bad traditions that were set up. This is important not only in how we receive the fullness of who Jesus is, but how we go out and tell others about who he is. There's real beauty in how these traditions developed centuries earlier. The cleansing traditions, in particular, were based on a command that God had given them. This was a command for the priesthood, in particular, as they were to enter the temple, representing humanity to God. They were meant to wash their hands and their feet as a sign of recognition that we need to be holy to be in the presence of a holy God. Now, the Jewish people believed in the high calling of holiness of every follower of Jesus, and so there developed this robust Jewish understanding of the priesthood of all believers. Right? This is a theme that's picked up in, our, in the New Testament as well, the priesthood of all believers. And it was from this understanding that these traditions of ritual cleansing, though not commands from God, these beautiful traditions developed out of there. As one commentator puts it, it's important to appreciate the concern to sanctify ordinary acts of life, which lay behind this extension Of priestly regulations to the laity." I think one reason this is especially important to say is because we're about to hear some really harsh words from Jesus against the Pharisees, and I think we too often translate Pharisee as the Jewish people broadly, and in doing so we accidentally promote kind of a low-grade anti-semitism. I think we need to flip that on its head. Because as Christians, we should totally appreciate Jewish culture. It is in many ways the culture that we have inherited. We can't understand Jesus as Messiah without understanding what a Jewish Messiah was meant to be. We can't understand the traditions of our own liturgies that we practice every Sunday morning without understanding the temple liturgies that undergird it. We must be willing to accept and receive traditions handed down to us whether Jewish or Christian traditions, so that we can stand on the shoulders of spiritual giants. So long as they do not draw us away from the truth that God has given us, they can be good things. But this was Jesus' charge against the Pharisees, that their traditions had become inordinately utilized. They'd become a bloated distortion because of how it was used, to keep people on the outside of the people of God. And this is ironic because of the original intention of the law that was given to the people of God. The law was meant to draw people in, not to keep them out. If we listen to our Old Testament reading from this morning, it says, Keep these laws and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. Originally, the purpose of the law was to draw in and attract all nations. Yes, it was meant to be a differentiator between the people of God and other nations, but for the sake of developing the beauty of who God is and drawing other nations through the wisdom of God to the God of the people. And in this way, they would become real worshipers of the one true God. It's kind of like this. I'm a Dallas Cowboys fan. I'll tell you, I'm a Cowboys fan because I was drawn to the sheer beauty of what they were laying down on the field in the nine, 19- Three Super Bowl championships, they had three big players, Troy Aikman, Emmett Smith, Michael Irvin, who leapt, glided, launched, powered their way through a decade of would-be challengers. They're on national TV more than any other team during that decade, and so I saw them, and I became a Cowboys fan, drawn to the beauty. Which is really important because over the last two decades of agonizing drought, where the only consistent thing about this team has been their inconsistency, I am still strangely a fan. It's kind of like that. But the Pharisees are kind of like those fans who might say, You don't watch every game. You're not a real fan. You don't paint your face in the silver and blue every time you do watch a game, maybe put a little on your belly while you watch it. You're not a real fan. You don't have anything autographed by a player. You don't have the Dallas Cowboys AT&T Stadium Lego set where you can put your iPhone in the middle and pretend like it's a Jumbotron. (laughs) You're not a real fan. That's a real thing, by the way. In other words, you're not living up to my expectations of what it means to be a fan, to be an insider. You're out. You don't make the cut. When our traditions and our preferences draw us away from the beauty of who God is in the Bible, then they become a problem, and it is one that Jesus needs to tear down. Now, I think we can pause here and receive Jesus's challenge for ourselves I know we like to poke fun at the Pharisees, and they are eminently pokeable because they regularly serve as the foil to the truth that Jesus brings, but they are in fact one of the sets of shoes that we're invited to step into in this passage. What parts of scripture are are you most tempted to try to write off because they make you uncomfortable? What is it about Jesus that might offend us? As Seth said last week, Jesus offends the mind to reveal the heart. Our tendency is to develop our own beliefs about what religion should be on our own, and then we map our personal preferences onto Christianity itself. I think it's easy enough to see around our nation today how that can go very wrong in many different directions. And we can tend to map these preferences onto Jesus himself, creating some version of Jesus that winds up in our own image. We need to be careful about these things because Jesus is good. Jesus is beautiful. And when we try to tweak who he is intentionally or accidentally, we take away from that goodness. On another level, I think we so often judge other people as insider or outsider along similar lines. Those Christians over to the right, those Christians over to the left, they can't be real fans of Jesus. And certainly this extends even to the non-religious world around us. So let us be especially aware of the boundary markers, the lines in the sand that we so regularly draw that we use to allow ourselves to write off or disparage somebody else who may just be different. Our preferences and our traditions, they're not unimportant. But we need to allow Jesus to shape our preferences, not the other way around. And so, for the Pharisees, Jesus knocks down their overdefined preferences, drawing away from the beauty of who God truly was. He challenges them because God is a God who longs to draw everybody to himself. Now, what they had created could not be merely tweaked back into perspective. And so, we hear some of Jesus' harshest words. He says, You hypocrites! honoring God with your lips and not your hearts. You leave the commandments of God and hold fast to the commandments of men. And Jesus called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside of a person that by going into him can defile him. This is a direct... The purity traditions that they relied on were not the solution. But before we see how Jesus goes on to refocus us, It's good for us to recognize the traps that Jesus avoids and the invitation that he gives to each one of us. Let me explain by way of another story, this one about my two boys, a five-year-old and a three-year-old. In the king household, blocks of various types are the top toy, barely edging out anything that can be turned into a sword or a lightsaber. Now, my two boys are close in age, They're at the point to where they are both really protective of the things that they build with their blocks, and they want to show what they have built to their brother. These two things do not always go well together. (laughs) Invariably, whether on purpose or not, an intricate block tower or castle is prematurely knocked over before it can be fully appreciated. More often than not, I've seen this natural response to forsake blocks forever out of disappointment and anger, giving one last kick to the toppled creation and screaming out of the room. Literally just yesterday this happened and I heard David shout, I don't like anything anymore. (laughs) But recently I've begun to see, the other day my oldest son Isaiah had built a really cool castle out of blocks and he was so proud of it and before he could show it to any of us, it was accidentally knocked over. And immediately he shouted, No! And frantically began to try to build exactly what had been knocked over, but slowly realizing that he wouldn't be able to recreate it. And I'll be honest, it crushed me to see this. He loved this castle that he had built so much, but now it lay around him in a heap of scattered blocks as he began to cry. I think so many of us have gone through a season where it feels like our castle has been knocked over and it's crushing. Maybe you feel like you're in that kind of season right now. Let me say, our tendency to look at the pieces around us of what we want once knew and to withdraw or run away or to try to recreate what we once had, it's so very understandable. In our story, it's hard to feel sorry for the Pharisees since we know where this story ultimately goes, but imagine the many followers of the Pharisees, a majority of the Jews of that day, whose block tower may have begun to crumble at the words of Jesus. They had built their lives around these codes. What does this mean? What's next? Jesus will go on to refocus us on the things that he is drawing them and us into, but we need to notice in this moment the extended arm of Jesus, to each one of us, we are invited to refocus on him and to trust him to lead us into something new. Sometimes when our castle is knocked over, it's God's mercy, and we can see that in the rearview mirror. But there are plenty of other times when simply the brokenness of the world steals something truly good away from us no matter the circumstances of our scattered castles, every time Jesus is extending his hand to us, to you, as he invites us into something new. Maybe that new thing will be better than what was lost, and maybe it won't. But I guarantee that as we experience the disorientation in the wake of lost hopes and relationships, if we take the hand of Jesus, he will lead us to a better new reality than what we might otherwise have known. And in our story this morning, as Jesus refocuses on what is true, the implicit invitation is this. As we sit among our scattered blocks, will we continue to refocus on him and trust him to lead us? Now let's read on in our passage to understand what this looks like in our story. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Out of the heart of man comes evil thoughts. Now, he goes on to give a nice long list about what this looks like. But this is the refocus. The problem is not that we haven't cleansed ourselves up well enough. It's that there's a crack in the foundation of every human heart. Now, this may not land as good news, but it is because this is the place that the gospel has to begin. Jesus is saying that we cannot clean ourselves up, and that's good news. We need to be washed clean from the heart first, from the inside out. This is the only line in the sand, whether or not your heart is made whole, and no external actions can accomplish this completely. Now, if we thought Jesus might counteract the Pharisees and their in-or-out boundaries by proclaiming everybody to be instantly in, we were wrong. If we thought Jesus might rebuild the traditions with new leaders, we were wrong. Importantly, hear what Jesus also is not saying. He's not saying the material and external world is bad, but the spiritual and internal world is good. As M.T. Wright puts it, Jesus is insisting that good and bad external and physical actions come from internal and spiritual sources, that therefore the poisoned wells of human motivation are the real problem. In other words, whether external actions or internal motivations, all things are tainted unless we allow Jesus to wash our hearts. Therefore, if you want to judge by in or out, then that line runs right through every human heart. Everybody is out because of a corrupted heart. Yeah, Pharisees, my guys are out, but so are you. Now, this Jesus seems to be a bit sharper than the Jesus we like to turn him into, but it's so important that we receive the Jesus who is and invite others to see him. It might be uncomfortable at times, but it's real, and I promise you it's more beautiful than we can imagine. This is the starting point of the good news of Jesus. While the Pharisees had built a tradition where we had to clean ourselves up and eventually go off and be with an otherwise distant God somewhere else, in the meantime making themselves the delineator of in or out, Jesus refocuses on the reality of God, who longs with all his heart to come and live with us. And he does just this in the person of Jesus so that our hearts can be restored, washed clean, so that we might long for the same thing, for the same relationship when he comes in fully. Our passage doesn't leave us with this solution, but through describing the problem, we understand the solution that Mark points us towards. Jesus's heart is the only heart that was already spotless, whole from beginning to end. In other words, he is the ultimate insider And he chooses to leave the inner sanctum with his face set on the cross where he would become an outsider for the sake of outsiders. In Mark's gospel, the final words of Jesus on the cross are these. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a gut-wrenching cry. It tells us that in a very real way, God sends himself into the outer darkness on our behalf plunging into the excruciating exile from the Father that the cross was. In light of this, he did not bring us an improved self-cleansing system. Rather, this is mysteriously the thing that makes it possible for us to be made clean again, to be made right with God again, to be cleansed from the inside out, if only we would receive it. The boundaries have been redrawn as they were always meant to be. No longer is everybody out, but everybody is invited in, invited to a real and beautiful friendship with Jesus so long as we will receive it. This is Jesus's proposed cure for the devastating problem of the heart, but it starts in a recognition that our hearts are hopeless without him. The gospel begins in this place. It starts as we look around at our scattered blocks of our own attempts to clean ourselves up for God. It takes root as we take the arm that Jesus extends us, longing that we would grab hold of it. And it's completed as we fully receive the cleansing of heart. That means that we can fully see the beauty of who Jesus is with clear eyes again. So wherever you are this morning, be encouraged. No matter how devastating are the contours of your scattered castle, whether now, whether something you've experienced in the past, or something that's coming down the pike in the future, Jesus will always hold his arm out to you to receive the cleansing that he has won for us, to know the love of God that passes all understanding. Will you receive it? Will you go and tell about it? In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.